The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s. Wilhelm Wundt and William James. Wilhelm Wundt and William James. The two Williams are usually thought of as the fathers of psychology, as well as the founders of psychology's first two great schools of thought. Although they were very different men, there are some parallels. Their lives overlap, for example, with Wilhelm Wundt, born in 1832 and dying in 1920, while William James was born 10 years later and died 10 years earlier. Both men have claims to having established the first psychology lab in 1875, and neither man named his school of thought. And as you will see, there are other commonalities as well, both personal and philosophical. To paraphrase words spoken at Wundt's own eulogy, I believe we haven't seen thinkers of their stature in psychology since. Wilhelm Wundt Wilhelm Wundt was born in a small village in Baden, Germany on August 16, 1832. He was the son of a Lutheran pastor and a solitary and studious boy. He roomed with and was tutored by his father's assistant, the vicar of the church where his father preached. Young Wilhelm was sent off to boarding school at age 13 and then to university at age 19. He studied medicine at Tübingen, Heidelberg, and Berlin, although interested more in the scientific aspect of medicine than an actual medical career. In 1857, Wundt was appointed docent, or instructor, at Heidelberg, where he lectured on physiology. From 1858 to 1864, Wundt also served as an assistant to the famous physiologist Hermann von Helmholtz, and studied the neurological and chemical stimulation of the muscles. In 1864, Wundt became an assistant professor at Heidelberg. Three years later, he started a course called Physiological Psychology, which focused on the border between physiology and psychology, i.e. the senses and reactions, an interest inspired by the work of Weber and Fechner. His lecture notes would eventually become his major work, The Principles of Physiological Psychology, which would be published in 1873 and 1874. Like Fechner and many others at the time, Wilhelm Wundt accepted the Spinozan idea of psychophysical parallelism. Every physical event has a mental counterpart, and every mental event has a physical counterpart. And Wundt believed, like Fechner, that the availability of measurable stimuli and reactions could make a psychological event open to something like an experimental methodology in a way that earlier philosophies, such as Kant, 
thought impossible. The method that Vont developed is sort of an experimental introspection. The researcher was to carefully observe some simple event, one that could be measured as to quality, intensity, or duration, and then to record his responses to variations of those events. Now, it's important to note that in German philosophy at the time, sensations were considered psychological events and therefore internal to the mind, even though the sensation is of something that is outside of the mind. Hence, what we might call observation, Wilhelm Wundt called introspection. To continue his story, Wundt went on to become the chair of inductive philosophy at Zurich in 1874, and then professor of philosophy at Leipzig in 1875. And it was there at Leipzig University that Wundt would stay and work for the next 45 years. In 1875, a room was set aside for Wundt for demonstrations in what we would now call sensation and perception. Now, this is the same year that William James would set up a similar lab at Harvard. So we can celebrate that year of 1875 as the founding of experimental psychology. In 1879, Wundt assisted his first graduate student at True Psychological Research, another milestone. In 1881, he started the first psychological journal. And in 1883, he began the first course to be titled Experimental Psychology. In 1894, his efforts were rewarded with the official establishment of an Institute for Experimental Psychology at Leipzig University, the first such in the world. Wilhelm Wundt was known to everyone as a quiet, hard-working, and very methodical researcher, as well as a very good lecturer. The latter comment is from the standards of the day, which were considerably different from today's. For instance, Wundt would go on in a low voice for a couple of hours at a time, without notes or audiovisual aids, and without pausing for questions. But his students loved him, even though we might criticize him for not being sufficiently entertaining. It is also curious to note that during this same busy period, Wundt also published four books in philosophy. And keep in mind that, at this time, psychology was not considered something separate from philosophy. In fact, Wundt rejected the idea when someone suggested it to him that psychology and philosophy should be separated. The studies conducted by Wilhelm Wundt and his now numerous students were mostly on sensation and perception, and of those, most concerned vision. In addition, there were studies on reaction time, attention, feelings, and association. In all, Wundt supervised 186 doctoral dissertations, most of them in psychology. Among Wundt's best-known students were Oswald Kolpe, and Hugo Munsterberg, 
whom William James would later invite to teach at Harvard. Also among his students were the Russian behaviorists Bekhterev and Pavlov, as well as American students such as G. Stanley Hall, the father of developmental psychology in America, James McKean Cattell, Leitner Whitmer, the founder of the first psychological clinic in the United States at the University of Penn, and Vunt's main interpreter to the English-speaking world, E.B. Titchener. Titchener is particularly responsible for interpreting Vunt badly. Later in his career, Wundt became interested in social or cultural psychology. Contrary to what many believe, Wundt did not think that the experimental study of sensations was the end-all and be-all of psychology. In fact, Wundt felt that it was only the surface, and additionally that most psychology was not as amenable to experimental methods. Instead, he felt that we had to approach cultural psychology through the products that it produced. Mythology, for example, cultural practices, rituals, literature, and art. Wundt wrote a ten-volume Volker Psychology, which was translated roughly as Folk Psychology, published between 1900 and 1920. These tomes included the idea of stages of cultural development, from the primitive to the totemic, through the ages of heroes and gods, to the age of modern man. In 1920, Wundt wrote his autobiography, and a short time later, on August 31, 1920, he died. Structuralism or Voluntarism Wilhelm Wundt is undergoing a resurgence in popularity. Over 100 years after his work, we have finally caught up with him. Actually, he was massively misrepresented by poorly educated American students in Germany, and especially a rather ego-driven Englishman named Titchener. Wundt recognized that Titchener was misrepresenting him in America and tried to make people aware of the problem. But Edwin Boring of Harvard University, the premier American historian of psychology for many decades, only knew Wundt through Titchener. One misunderstanding revolves around the title of one major work, physiological psychology. But physiological psychology originally meant experimental psychology, using the methods of psychology. And this term was different than the term experimental psychology used by the behaviorists in the 20th century. Wundt and his students used an experimental version of introspection, the careful observation of one's perceptions, and outlined some pretty specific details to the method. So imagine that you are a graduate student in Wilhelm Wundt's laboratory, and you are about to witness a phenomenon. 
Now, here are the four things that must be happening in order for you to do introspection. Number one, the observer must know when the experience begins and ends. Number two, the observer must maintain, quote, strained attention to be paying attention the whole time. Number three, the phenomenon must bear repetition. It must be repeated multiple times with the same results. And number four, the phenomenon must be capable of variation, i.e. experimentation. Regarding sensations, for example, it was determined that there are seven qualities of sensations. These generally parallel the five senses, with the sense of touch being slightly expanded. And so those seven are visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, cutaneous, kinesthetic, or movement, and organic. Several of these have additional aspects or submodalities. Vision, for example, has hue, saturation, and value. And these qualities could vary in intensity, duration, vividness, and for the visual and cutaneous senses, extension. Wilhelm Wundt's labs were enormously productive places, describing things like selective attention, short-term memory, and others, even including the famous limitations on short-term memory to seven or so pieces of information, a finding that would not be noticed again until the 1970s. Consciousness. One of the things that would make Wundt's work so foreign to American psychologists was what he referred to as the principle of actuality. He said that consciousness is, in fact, a reality, and that it is the subject matter of psychology. Now, this is, in fact, true although we managed to overlook it for a good 80 years or so when behaviorism ruled the academic world here in the United States, Britain, and Russia. Consciousness, the mental processes, are the activity of the brain and not material. Wundt accepted Spinoza's metaphysics of parallelism and spent a great deal of effort refuting reductionism. He believed that consciousness and its activities simply did not fit the paradigms of physical science, even though psychology emerges from biology, chemistry, and physics. With that emergence, consciousness has gained a certain capacity for creative synthesis, another of Wundt's key concepts. Although consciousness operates in and through the physical brain, its activities cannot be described in terms of chemistry or physics. The color blue, the sound of an E minor chord, the taste of smoked salmon, the meaning of a sentence are all eminently psychological or subjective events with no simple physical explanations. When does that wavelength, retinal activity, neural firing, and so forth become blue? 
Wundt also prefigures the Gestalt psychologists in rejecting the associationism of Locke and Hume. Psychological structures, he taught, are more than just the sum of their parts. He and his students concluded that consciousness is composed of two stages. First, there is a large capacity working memory called the Blickfeld. Then, there is a narrower consciousness called apperception, which we might translate as selective attention. Apperception is under voluntary control and moves about within the Blickfeld. This selective attention idea became very influential. It led, among other things, to Kreplin's theory of schizophrenia as a breakdown of the attention processes. Psycholinguistics Another aspect of Wundtian psychology was its psycholinguistics, which actually takes up the first two books of his Volker Psychology. Wundt suggested that the fundamental unit of language is the sentence, not the word or the sound. He identified the sentence not just with a sequence of words and sounds, but as a special mental state. Sounds, words, the rules of grammar, etc., all have their meaning only in relation to that underlying mental sentence. Wundt actually invented the tree diagram of syntax we are all familiar with in linguistics texts. Language starts with S, the sentence, at the top, and selective attention separates the subject, the focus or the figure, from the predicate, the ground. This is in contrast to the popular bottom-up, associationistic conception that the behaviorists proposed. Wundt's ideas are now the standard, yet no one remembers that they were his in the first place. Looking at the language of children, Wundt and his students propose that language has its origins in emotional sounds and gestures. Yet another theory that is returning to favor. Emotions. According to Wundt, we are first of all emotional creatures. All of our mental activities involve emotion, and emotion precedes cognition. He was very much the romantic, in the philosophical sense of romance. He used a variety of terms. Feelings were what he called the basic, short-lived experiences. Moods were the more long-lived versions of feelings. Emotions proper were the more complex experiences. And motivations were the more pressurized versions of emotion that lead to behavior. Wundt disagreed with William James and the James-Lang theory of emotions. William James believed that we first respond to a situation and then we experience the emotion. Wundt pointed out that introspection clearly shows that the emotion comes first, 
then we have physiological and behavioral consequences. He felt that we could not come up with some organized list of emotions. The emotions blend into each other too much. But we could determine several quality dimensions with which to describe emotions. Three in particular. Number one, pleasure versus displeasure. Two, high versus low arousal. And three, strained or controlled attention versus relaxed attention. Volition. Wundt felt that volition, acts of the will, decisions, choices, were so significant to understanding psychology that he wound up calling his theory voluntaristic psychology. Volition is really motivation, and volitional action is motivated behavior. It comes out of a creative synthesis of other emotional qualities. Students of psychology often learn about Wundt's reaction time experiments. He really saw those as studies of volition. The work done in Wundt's lab on volition would influence the Belgian phenomenologist Albert Michot, who in turn would influence people such as Heider, Levine, and Festinger, who would be very influential in the new specialty called social psychology. Volition and volitional acts can range from impulses and automatic, nearly reflexive acts to complex decisions and acts that require great effort. Many controlled actions become automatic over time, such as when you are learning to play an instrument. At first, your attempts to learn the guitar are very controlled. They require great concentration. But over time, those controlled actions become automatic which then frees us up for more complicated volitional work. In fact, it was the development of logical thought that Wundt considered the very highest form of will that human beings are capable of. He was quite optimistic about our potential in that regard. <laughs> 